This podcast is for mature audiences 18 and over and for entertainment purposes only. Please contact your healthcare provider before pursuing any of our topics discussed. You're listening to Eat, Play, Sex with Dr. Cat, the place to get play, sex, and nutrition talk straight to your ears. Hey, lovers, and welcome to another episode of Eat, Play, Sex. I'm your sex expert, Dr. Cat. Now, I was in a conversation with a girlfriend of mine last night about our past loves and how we relate to these people now and what we've learned over this time. And some of these cases that have evolved into really some beautiful friendships moving forward, well, some of them have just gone completely dark. And there's so much power and being able to look at our parts in the co-creation of the unfolding, both the unfolding now and then the unfolding of those relationships at those times. You know, to look at our patterns and these places where we may choose to feel safety over creating intimacy and to choose to not shame ourselves around how we have or have not been able to hold closeness, but rather accept and love these parts to transmute them. Oh, I love relationships. It's such an epic container for our personal evolution. And yet, I know it can be incredibly messy. But don't worry, I've got the epic George Haas here to dive in about attachment theory and how we can empower ourselves in our relationships. We are going to decode your love life, (laughs) which to me is really exciting. (laughs) Totally nerd out on this. But before we get to George, lovers, you are the reason that I do this show. And I want to thank you for tuning in, for spreading the word, leaving reviews, and trying some of the suggestions and products that we recommend. I absolutely love hearing about your takeaways and all the things that you've been discovering about yourself. Because my goal here is help you to eat, play, and sex better. Now, if you haven't already, please head to eatplaysex.com where you can subscribe to the show connect with me, and read more about how you can up-level your sex, love, and vitality. Ah, mm, Thanks for joining me today, George. Happy to be here. (laughs) George was introduced to me by a friend. I reached out, and it was just magic, I think, because I reached out to my friend, and I was like, hey, do you know somebody who is an expert in attachment theory and would be just really epic to, to bring on the show. And he's like, I know the exact man. And, <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. Uh-huh. Now I do want to put in there. I told George before we got on the podcast, there's some, some, some construction going on next door to me. And so sometimes we might hear <laughs> some hammering or we might hear some, you know, constructing going on. And I just want everybody to visualize this as a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> we're constructing our relationships. So we're reconstructing our love lives. And George is here to help us. <laughs> yep. So thank you for being our guide in all of this. George Haas is a longtime teacher of meditation and attachment theory and the founder of Metagroup, which uses Vipassana and insight meditation as a way to help students not only have a meaningful life, but to bring ourselves 
completely in connection in our relationships with others and with our work. Now, he leads these day-long and weekend and extended retreats around the country to dive into these practices, which looks really interesting to me. It's like there's so much in attachment theory that I feel like the intensives are almost necessary. <gasps> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe you can, we can start out with you sharing with us what attachment theory is. Because I, I know people sometimes hear of avoidant attachment or anxious attachment and that kind of thing, but I don't think people really understand what that means for them. So those are child categories. Um, mm-hmm. The adult categories would be dismissing and preoccupied. Mm-hmm. Uh, attachment right. theory was uh, um, developed by uh, John Bowlby, who was an English psychiatrist. He practiced in London after the Second World War. If you may remember your uh, history, world history, Germany bombed London during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And children were uh, evacuated from the city, and the people with of means were able to relocate their children with relatives in the countryside. But for the poor children, the government started a program where they took children out of the homes and put them into foster care in the countryside. Oh, wow. And what that really meant was that kids were put to work in the countryside on the farms, uh, mostly. But then when the war was over and the children were reunited with their their parents, the British government hired John Bowlby to evaluate whether or not the separation from the parents would cause harm to the children that the government would then need to be able to provide mental health services for. Mm. So he began to examine the connection between children and their parents and to see uh, whether that separation would be disruptive to it. And what he found was that it was likely to cause lifelong harm. Wow. And then he wanted to figure out actually what those attachment mechanisms were, and he hired an American woman named Mary Ainsworth to devise a a way of testing children to see what their attachment formulation with their parents uh, was. Mm -hmm. Identified three... uh, (coughs) I have a cough, so excuse me. That's okay. They, they have three main, they discovered three main attachment strategies. In children, they called them secure, anxious, avoidant, and uh, uh, anxious, ambivalent. The, um, and then they went into homes and did extensive research to see what kind of parenting uh, caused what kind of attachment outcome. Mm-hmm. And what they also discovered is that by the age of 10 months old, you already have an attachment orientation and that people have a 75% chance of living their entire lives with an attachment strategy that they develop in early childhood. So three quarters of us will live our entire lives with the attachment formulation that happened by the time we were 10 months old. Oh, God. (laughs) Nobody freak out. (laughs) really stable and, and early. Uh, <laughs> wow. The Zen people have a saying, oops, the Zen people have a saying, what water ask the fish? Uh, because uh, it comes on so early, really even before conscious memory, that it's just the way that it's always been. And so uh-huh. assume that that's how it is. Mm. 
So we formulate these attachment strategies early and then they inform us or they create a view of how we see relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. And then you'll have to think of this for yourself, but what, what age were you when you have your earliest memory of childhood? So for most people, it's going to be between the ages of four and five. Mm-hmm. You then have a second level of uh history that begins to develop you begin to remember your relationship interactions with other people and that forms a a view really of the world so if you look at the early attachment view it's a thing that formulates how you think of yourself and your own competencies this coming online at 10 months old and then this um capacity to remember relationship history that comes on at four or five creates this expectation of what you think you can get from other people and, and from the world. Mm, so it's this, what we're seeing is this view of the self, of the world, of others, of relationships, all formulating from that, from that age. Like we have this natural inclination to attach. It's just how that, how we attach influences these. Yeah. And if you think of attachment as the uh, abandonment anxiety or abandonment terror that arises when you feel unsafe or you feel threatened of mm-hmm. abandonment. And mm-hmm. that what the mechanism is really about is uh, causing you to retreat to the protection of your attachment figure. So secure people think of themselves as capable of getting their needs met and they think of the world as filled with people who will meet their needs and they go about their lives as if that were true. Mm-hmm. And so if something happens to them, they, they usually have developed a social network and they just retreat immediately to their social network for protection and care. And then their social network is engaged in uh, supporting them and pushing them back out so that they explore what's meaningful to them. And so there's this natural dance or balance between being in uh, nurturing relationships and going out and exploring what has meaning. And if you have a good balance there, then life is very rich because you're out exploring and doing a kind of solo exploration of what really has meaning to you. And then you're rushing back to this group of people who's delighted to have you back and delighted to hear (coughs) about what you found out. And then they're happy to exchange with you what they found out. Wow. So this goes even beyond just a romantic attachment. This is also with our community and our friends. Yeah, it's w- with every every engagement, really. Oh. In romantic attachment, of course, it gets um, intensified because sexual energy is so intense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like scratching my head over here. Uh, uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> and, you know... Um, I like to say that we're all born with this slick, uh, fancy, uh, powerful sports car of a sexual orientation. Uh, uh, but by the time we're old enough to drive, it's a beat up old jalopy. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> the, um, so much can impact the development of a healthy expression of sexuality uh-huh, in, yeah. in childhood and how you're received and how your uh, caregivers respond to you. And sexual orientation, you know, it's it's be, really even beyond the object choice, who it is that you like and uh, you find arousing. But, uh, you know, orientation, um, uh, gender, all of that stuff gets wrapped up into it. 
And so we come into this adolescent period where we begin to see what it is that is arousing. And uh, we may find that things that are arousing to us actually don't match very well with our moral compass. Mm. Uh, And so we have a lot of judgment about it. And these things are pretty fixed by the time we're able to have agency with them. So a lot of this is an opening to what actually is there and what Mm. is going to be useful to us and how we can use it to further intimacy and relationships. Mm. So I have a question. Given our attachment uh, conditioning, particular to us as individuals, does that, like when we're attracted to somebody, should we, I'm like almost afraid to be like, should we be like, oh my gosh, I know that I have this more uh, dismissing attachment. So I, I don't need to be or this person I'm attracted to is going to be the wrong fit for me just because I'm attracted and feeling that internal like buzz. Well, I like to call it the glow. The glow. Uh, some people glow and some people don't. Mm. And there's actually a, a, you know, a, a biological basis for this. If you see somebody and you recognize the care that you're likely to get from them mm-hmm. as matching the care that you grew up with, your eyes dilate and they begin to glow. <gasps> Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. And everybody who isn't in the center of focus uh, sort of washes out because too much light is coming in. And it's, it's one of the reasons that, you know, people can light up like a Christmas tree and other people don't But yeah. understand that it isn't so much the attachment mechanism that's going off, but the unconscious body mind is recognizing the kind of care that you're likely to get from them and that it matches with your original caregivers. So we may want to reorient ourselves to it, not based on attachment so much, but based on if you got crap care, you're recognizing a person who's going to give you crap care. Oh, my God. I want everyone to write this down. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag that. (laughs) Good enough care, then the people that you're recognizing are going to give you good enough care. And if you didn't, then you're recognizing the people that will probably not give you good enough care. The glow, as you know, doesn't last, right? Mm -hmm. After, what, a few months or six months or so, it goes away, and then you have the person in front of you that was always there in front of you, but they're just not glowing anymore. Mm -hmm. And so in the beginning, it's useful to really understand what's glowing, And so, you know, I used to tell my friends, if you want to know who the sociopaths in the party uh, are, let me know. I can spot them a mile away. No way. It matches my early conditioning. Oh, wow. But I also learned that they were not the people that you wanted to be engaged with in relationship. (laughs) And so you can do it manually, right? You can really see people for who they are and look toward people who are likely to provide you with secure functioning in the relationship so that the relationships can be reliable. If you look at the nature of securely functioning relationships, they're based on a ground of reliability. And what I mean by that is that you don't worry or even think that the person who's told you that they'll do something, that they'll do it or not, because they always do it. It doesn't Mm -hmm. even arise in the mind that there's a concern about whether or not they'll do it. 
Uh-huh. They say they're going to show up. They always show up. If they say they're going to do something. They always do it. And they do it so reliably, you don't even think about it. And then the second piece is mutual care. And mutual care is different than equal care. You combine uh, your relational resources together, right? So you bring your attachment ingredients, your partner brings their attachment ingredients, and you cook up an attachment relationship that's unique to the two of you bringing it together. And if you base it on a, a commitment to mutual care, then you take care of the other person in the way that they want to be taken care of, and they take care of you in a way that you want to be taken care of, even if the resource distribution is unequal, which it most often is. Yeah, I often tell my clients, it's more about seeking balance and not symmetry. Right, exactly. Yeah, we have different needs. And so often we project onto the other person that they have the same needs as ours. And that's not the case. And that's largely the dismissing strategist uh, Mm. does that. Maybe tell me about this. Let's talk to our listeners about these three different or four different um, patterning that we see in the adults. Because you had (sighs) mentioned dismissing and preoccupied already. Can you explain to them what that looks like? So secure people have the view that they're good at getting their needs met and they see the world as people filled with people who are willing to take meet their needs. Mm-hmm. Dismissing people see themselves as grandiosely great. I'm the best thing that ever happened. But they see the rest of us as not up to it. So it's like, I'm the best thing that ever happened and I would be willing to be in a mutual relationship with you, but you're not really up to it. So I feel justified in taking from you whatever I want and not reciprocating. Mm. So that if I want to take care of you in a certain way and it's not the way you want to be taken care of, my way of taking care of you is better than what you wanted. Mm. So just accept what I'm doing. Preoccupied people think of themselves as strangely incapable of getting their needs met, but they see everybody else as capable of meeting their needs if they can just get them to do it. So they attempt to uh, take care of the other person, not because they're attempting to take care of them, but so that they can get the other person to meet their needs. Mm. So there's a kind of skewing in that. Uh, Even when it comes to, say, sex, they're not interested in sexual gratification. They're interested in maintaining physical proximity to the person. So often there, there can be complications in, in the sexual life because of that, because the underlying motivation isn't sexual gratification either for themselves or the other person, but in maintaining closeness in the relationship. Whoa. Okay, so I want to go deeper into that, but there's also okay. a fourth piece as well, isn't there? There's a disorganized piece. Uh-huh. Some, somebody who's disorganized. When we say disorganized uh, versus organized, in organized people, you can predict how they're going to react because they're so consistent. Secure people react securely, dismissing people react in a dismissing way, preoccupied people react in a preoccupied way. In a disorganized person, it's very hard to predict how they're going to react because they could react in any one of those other three ways. Mm -hmm. When we say disorganized, the response is disorganizing to the person experiencing it because it's so unpredictable how somebody will respond. Mm. And if you remember that the ground of which secure relationships are based uh, is reliability, 
somebody who's disorganized falls into the unreliable category because they're so unpredictable in how they respond. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, are people one of these or are they a blend of these? Is it more of like a spectrum thing or is it more of like a you're this? It's more like a go-to thing. Mm. So, um something activates your attachment mechanism. So some perception of abandonment, stress, uh, or danger, and then your attachment mechanism activates, which is the proximity seeking of the person who you feel is safe. Mm -hmm. uh, dismissing people. So secure people seek immediate connection to people that they feel safe with so that they can feel connected and, and cared for. Dismissing people go into a kind of idealizing or devaluing mode. They idealize the person in an attempt to seduce them into closeness. And if that doesn't work, they devalue them. Um, so if you can imagine the devaluation working is, uh, it doesn't matter to me whether you lo I lose you. It doesn't matter to me whether I'm abandoned because you're not worth anything. Wow. How could I be, how could I abandonment threaten me if you, you don't have any value? Um, and it's the, the anger you notice from them is very devaluing. You are not worth anything. The whole person is devalued. Mm. The preoccupied, you have a question? Oh, no, go ahead. The preoccupied uh, person regulates with constant proximity and they tend to get into a kind of helplessness. I'm helpless. You have to save me mode. Um, one of the things about that kind of helplessness though, is that it's unsolvable because their, their belief is that as long as they're helpless and you're helping them with the problem, they'll be in connection to you. But if you were able to solve the problem where they were able to solve the problem, the need for proximity would end. And then separation would follow that. Mm. So they tend to present in a helpless manner and they tend to present problems that can't be solved. Uh, so uh, I don't know how you feel about people who present you with unsolvable problems and then insist that you have a moral obligation to stay and solve it. Yeah, perpetual. I mean, yeah. I see it in my client office a lot and it's, you know, having to create that container while also giving it back to them at right. the end. Yeah, totally. yeah. And a lot of times they're not helpless and it's obvious that they're not helpless. So that it also creates a kind of uh, skewing of your, your thought process. Why is this perfectly capable person presenting themselves as helpless? It seems inauthentic. And that's one of the difficulties with a preoccupied person is that they, they seem so inauthentic a lot of the time. Wow, interesting. Now, are people able to move from this? Like, are they able to shift out of these conditionings? Or is this something that they're, um, like you said, it's a, um, uh, they fall back on it? Like, it's very stable. That? It's transgenerationally stable. You have an 85% chance of having the same attachment strategy as your primary caregiver. Whoa. <laughs> Children pick their primary caregiver. You have a 70% chance of having the same attachment strategy as your great-grandmother. <sighs> Just rolls down generations. But the good news is it's changeable. And because it's changeable, it can go in either direction. You can move from secure to less secure, uh, insecure to more secure. One of the reasons that we teach the classes that we do and offer the instruction that we do is because 
uh, it is changeable, but it's also very stable. So you have to push hard to get it to change. Mm. And we talk about the change in, in three levels. The first is, uh, I'm going to, this is a little bit of a Buddhist formulation. I'm, I am a Buddhist meditation teacher, so I tend mm -hmm. to think of it in these ways. You, you have the object that can be sensed. You have the capacity to sense it. So uh, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling. In Buddhism, we also have mind. I won't really go into that, but it's there. When the object meets the capacity to sense, there's a content, contact, and a consciousness of that sensing experience arises in awareness. And then that sensing experience is compared to the perceptual database uh, for uh, a way of understanding what the, the sensing experience is. Uh, we also call it conditioning. Um, you might call it a somebody's personal history. But the way that we experience things in the past is often associated with the way that things, the way what's happening now in the present moment. Mm -hmm. And when that moment of perception happens, we can think that the present moment uh, and all of its possibilities are limited to the, the possibilities that we chose in the past. Mm -hmm. So we, we self-limit. And that's in some sense what this attachment mechanism is. You compare the database of things that have already happened to you with the present moment, and then suddenly the limitations imposed on the present moment are the choices that you've made in the past. And so you have a tendency to repeat over and over again the same behaviors because yeah. you identify the present moment as requiring that. Wow. This isn't actually true. If you could see the present moment and all of the possibilities, you would be free to choose different things. Mm -hmm. so the, the idea in terms of the repair of this is to be able to see them. So the first thing we do is called ideal parent figure uh, protocol, which is a guided meditation where we begin to create ideal understandings of uh, relationships because it turns out that the perceptual uh, memory process doesn't care whether they actually happened or whether you can imagine them. So we begin to imagine these ideal outcomes and then the process of understanding the present moment can be informed by an ideal outcome rather than the outcome that actually happened to you. And then you can begin to see in the present moment possibilities that you didn't allow yourself to see before and choose them. And then what unfolds from there is very different than what unfolds when you keep picking the same thing over and over again. You, wow. presence, you may have noticed in, in some of the, we, we call them students. <laughs> I notice in a lot of the students that they, they repeat the same thing over and over again, even though there are other choices available to them. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is to, to direct people in such a way that they can see that other possibilities are there for them. Mm -hmm. So it's like a rewiring of our habit yeah, that's totally. formed in the brain. Totally. Um, you know, we grow it in the brain. It's physical. The structure mm -hmm. is physically there. And so you have to create alternative structures. That's the way that this shifts. <laughs> I love how you, in the work that you do, how you incorporate the Buddhist um, meditation, the, the Vipassana meditation. Um, my 
tagline for the, for my business is to create space right. and, and to get embodied. And mm-hmm. so how easy it is for us to just run into these, these automatic responses that are, or reactions that are in our, in, that are in our mind, but then to right. cause, create space and just really tune in, we can make a better decision on how we want to respond, how we want to move forward more in our power. Yeah, that's really to be able to choose in the moment how to respond and not be driven to it. Yeah. How Everybody can sigh. Everybody can relax now. We have the solution. We're not doomed. No, you can change this. That's what's. That's actually really what's so exciting about this. And also to watch people change. It is a bittersweet thing. Uh-huh. And so I think also we should tell people to be prepared for that. <gasps> we should open, tell them. <laughs> if you open up to the possibility that you can be different and you can respond differently to things. And then you undertake the training to where you train yourself to be able to do that. And then you find that you can do it. What you'll notice is, and the reason that we work in meditation so much is because it's procedural memory. So the unconscious automatic memory is what we're trying to affect so that you just unconsciously and automatically choose differently So the experience consciously is the same, but you're choosing differently. And the Mm -hmm. outcomes are different and much better. But then you realize in a deep way that it was never your capacity that limited you. It was your conditioning and the way that you chose that limited you. So that all of the opportunities in the past that you've lost, you you, you lost them not because you couldn't do them, but because you couldn't see to choose them. And that, that has that bittersweet quality to it. George, I was, hmm? Oh, I was going to say, George, do you realize how many quotes, like how many quotable things you say? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm over here. I can't even keep up. Right. <laughs> Thank God this is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I see this, you know, human beings are, we live in this human body. It has this the same sensing capacities. We are largely the same in the way that we respond to things. And Mm -hmm. yet at the same time, because each of our conditionings is different, we're unique in the way that we respond. Mm. So we are both very similar to everybody else and very different from everyone else. Mm. That's part of the nature of being human and how we adapt to that. If we just look at the biochemical nature of being human, we have brain structures that are designed to be in complex social groups. Mm-hmm. We're made evolutionarily to be in intimate social connection. And it's painful for us just because of the bodies we live in, not to be in those kinds of connections, those kinds of social structures. So that the social isolation that a lot of people face is in itself painful. And if you're used to that as a way of being in the world, you don't even notice that you're in pain until you have the contrast of being actually connected. Uh, And we talk about this as one of the skills of secure attachment, which is to really see the value of attachment, because to be in intimate, connected, uh, supportive relationships takes a lot of time, energy, and resources to maintain. Mm -hmm. 
people who grew up in uh, secure households see the value of attachment. And so they see the expenditure of those resources as worth it. Mm-hmm. But people who grew up in insecure households never got that much reward from the relationships. And so they don't see the value of putting so much resource into them so that they self-limit the amount of resources that they're willing to put into relationships and in, in the process of doing that, exclude themselves from secure functioning relationships um, because they're not willing to put the energy into them that they take. So oh, it's a kind of a paradox. You're frightened that it that you'll get used or you'll waste your resources on a, a relationship, so you restrict how much you put in, and that restriction is the thing that limits you to relationships that don't provide very well for you. Yeah. So like uh, developing an interdependence. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And are there, I wonder, if, are there basic needs that all of us have as human beings? Well, I think we talk about them in four levels, uh, food, shelter, company, and medicine, right? You need to, a place to shelter, you need enough food to eat, you need company, people to be with, and you need uh, um, physical care for the body <coughs> to thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll do that in order to, we'll engage in these um, conditioning in order to get those needs met. Right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm really curious, you know, given the extent of this and the complexity of this, of this theory, you know, this and you going in, what, what inspired you to go into this, to look at this theory? Well, I'd like to say I had a crappy childhood and did not function very well in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see that other people could do it, and I just couldn't. I, and it baffled me why I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I started in psychotherapy early. I'm a gay man, and uh, in the 60s, uh, uh, my parents put me into reparative therapy to reorient me. Wow. It didn't work. Um, I don't recommend it. I think it should be illegal, but uh, it it also caused me to, uh, you know, put additional pressure on my uh, sexual expression because of that. Um, And it was uh, in that time period, uh, it was homosexuality was illegal in all 50 states. And if you came out, you lost your friends and family. So there was a huge pressure on it that is thankfully relieved in some places in the the world. Um, (coughs) Wow, such different times. So I went into psychotherapy and I did years and years and years of psychotherapy, maybe 25 years of psychotherapy. And Mm -hmm. I got to the end of it and my therapist said, you know, you've done the most amazing work. Uh, This is really as good as it's going to get. This is as good as psychotherapy can make it. And when I thought about it, it still wasn't good enough. Mm. I still had the sense of despair about how my life was going to be and how well my relationships were going to function. And I happened to be listening uh, to uh, the radio and uh, Paul Shore, who's at UCLA, who's a, a researcher in neuroscience, gave a talk on disorganized attachment strategy uh, and the patterns that people who have that 
lives uh, unfold in. And in 10 minutes, he described the pattern of my life in a way that 25 years of psychotherapy had not described. And uh, the light went off that actually I need to really get into this because this is the thing that uh, dominates the cycle of, of my life. And so I began to research uh, attachment theory and what came up in attachment theory research was that there was no real way that psychotherapy had yet developed that really affected the attachment outcome. And I thought uh, that I could use my meditation practice in order to uh, understand how the mechanism worked and to shift it into more secure functioning. Um, and that was very rewarding. So I've, I've gone personally from the most disorganized uh, way of being in the world to uh, functioning in a secure way over the course of the, the, the 20 or so years of my personal practice. But that's also a long time. And so what we're trying to do is divide, divine or devise a way of really shortening that so that somebody could come in and do uh, two or three years of intensive work and move from uh, uh, insecure functioning to secure functioning. And so that's what we're trying to do. That's incredibly inspiring and and a lot of hope for everyone out there, yeah. you know, especially. And I think to hear your story, to understand the depth of your passion for this work as well. Mm -hmm. I'm also old, you know, and one of the great <laughs> joys of being old is all of those competitive and uh, aspiring adult activities don't interest me anymore. And oh. I really just want to be of service to the world and to my community, uh, to my students. Uh, and I think that that's a natural progression that happens as you get older. Yeah, yeah. I can relate to some of your story, you know, especially in regards to um, watching everybody else connect and not really understanding how how to do that. I also struggled with intimacy and, and that connection, and, mm -hmm. and which is what spurred me wanting to go into psychotherapy as well and, and body oriented connection and yoga and, right. and energy work and that kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, we do, on my retreats, we do trauma yoga as part of the this routine of the day. Oh, amazing. We do it uh, in the morning uh, and then also the last thing at night. There's mm. yoga periods each day on the retreats to really get you in the body. Um, secure people just have a natural sense of being in the body. Dismissing people completely suppress awareness of all of their emotions as a way of coping with the, the experience of their childhood. If you grow up and you're dismissing in your attachment strategy, it means that you came from profound neglect. Uh, and it also means that the only way that you could really get care from your parents was by idealizing them and telling them what great parents they were. So you, you have this real deep schism of, you know the care that you're getting is really bad, and at the same time, the only way that you can get care is by telling your caregivers how good they are at it. Mm. Uh, and so the only way that you can tolerate that intense emotion is just to cut it all off. And so dismissing people are unemotional. Preoccupied people get uh, that comes from inconsistent care. 
Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong. Sometimes they completely get it wrong. Sometimes they, they're absent. And so you become enmeshed or focused on the other person to the point that you lose awareness of yourself. And you just become centered on the other person. Disorganized people uh, imagine the difficulty of this when something frightens you or you feel abandoned, your attachment mechanism goes off and it compels you to uh, approach the attachment figure or to connect with the attachment figure. For them, the attachment figure was the source of the fear. So you have the attachment figure causing the harm and then your attachment mechanism going off, compelling you to seek proximity to the person who's causing you the harm. And so that's the thing that creates the disorganization because the fight or flight mechanism engages when you attempt to approach the person that's causing you harm and it just sort of disorganizes you internally mm. into a kind of collapse. <clears throat> and then earlier, and I want to tie back in what you had brought up earlier, and we just touched base on it a little bit, um, where you had said how this influences our sexuality as well, how we show up as in uh, our sexual relationships. Right. So secure people see the value of mutual relationships, and so they see the value of taking care of the other person. So that would mean meeting the other person's sexual needs so that they feel fulfilled. And when you're in a relationship like that, where the other person is understanding and interested in taking care of what your sexual needs are, and you're reciprocating and doing the same for them, that creates a very dynamic and uh, powerful uh, connection sexually. A dismissing person thinks of themselves as capable and amazing, and they think of the rest of us as less than, and they think that their needs should be met and that they don't need to reciprocate. Uh, and so you in that kind of relationship would be servicing the dismissing person. And um, so there's an even distribution between male and female. I know that in, in our culture, we tend to, to stereotype men as more dismissing and women as more preoccupied, but it's, there's a balance uh, between them. Uh, there are plenty of alpha males, but there are also plenty of alpha females. There are plenty of uh, beta females, but there are also plenty of beta males. And that's totally fine, right? Because you need that kind of matching uh, thing. Preoccupied people are, are willing to do whatever you want them to do in order to maintain proximity. So that if you want sex from them and they don't want sex, they'll still provide the sex in order for them to have the proximity so that, that they're using sex to get a secondary goal. And the problem in those kinds of relationships is that there uh, viscerally is an understanding that the other person isn't really engaged or interested in the sex. Um, and for men in particular, the perception that the other person is aroused is vital to their own arousal. And so you'll notice in dynamics where there's a preoccupied person involved and they're not really engaged in the activity of sexual gratification if uh, that's female, and then the male will have performance problems because they perceive that the other person actually isn't into it, uh, but they're doing it. Um, 
And then disorganized people are, are frightened that if they do the wrong thing, that they'll be killed. And so that really heightens the kind of um, swings that can happen through sexual encounters. Wow. But you might look at also the way that attachment causes relationship patterning. Mm -hmm. uh, the most common um, stable long-term uh, relationship is between two secure people. They both sure. see the value of the relationship. They form functioning, connected relationships that are stable and long-lasting. Yeah, so there's that interdependence and they and they recognize, oh, if I'm not feeling as you know strong, you can take over and vice right. versa. Yeah. The obligation to take care of the other person doesn't isn't uh, conditional on them taking care of you. Kind of a tit for tat mm -hmm. relationship. You're not taking care of me, so I'm gonna stop taking care of you. That isn't a secure functioning relationship. Your obligation to take care of the other person is operational, whether they're able to take care of you in that moment or not. Mm. Their obligation to take care of you is not contingent on you being able to take care of them in that moment. So you can cover for each other. You can help balance each other when the other person is incapable, and it doesn't threaten the relationship. In... Uh, the second most common coupling is a dismissing person with a preoccupied person. Oh my God, I see that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what does that look like? Those can be stable and long lasting, provided that the dismissing person gives the minimum amount of care to the preoccupied person mm. so that they can keep functioning. Otherwise, what you have is the preoccupied person burns out and can't do it anymore and, and withdraws. The dismissing person typically doesn't care because they devalue the person and just move on to someone else. What's important for the dismissing person is that they have a steady flow of psychic uh, supplies, you know, uh, psychic juice, I like to call it. Oh, what does that mean? What does that look like? So uh, admiration, prestige, money, position, anything that helps them inflate their sense of self. If they don't have it, of course, the inflation begins to collapse and they touch into the terrible sadness of actually having a childhood experience where nothing they did could get their caregivers to take care of them. Uh. In fact, they're, they're, they fail so completely in childhood to get the care that they want that they give up, try, they give up any hope of mutual care. And that's what propels them into this. It's not that they give up trying to get their needs met. They give up trying to do it in a mutual relationship and then just take what they want mm -hmm. without reciprocating. Wow. A preoccupied person is happy to abandon their own exploration and abandon everything uh, in exchange for proximity and dismissing people like to have somebody constantly inflating them. So there's a real dynamic there that can work as long as there's a minimal amount of care provided to the preoccupied person mm -hmm. minimal yeah. amount of care so that they are taking care of themselves so that they don't perpetuate the helplessness well they dismissing people really like the helplessness because then they can inflate themselves that they're they they have to take care of this person oh wow yeah yep i've seen that <laughs> really works well yeah okay even though the preoccupied person is doing everything 
Uh-huh. The preoccupied person is doing everything because they think that if they can create a dependence in the other person, then they won't be able to leave them. Yeah. Oof. And the dismissing side feels that they won't, the other person won't leave as long as they're doing everything. Yeah. Can that be comfortable? Because that doesn't sound very comfortable. <laughs> well, I think it's actually pretty common. And if you go to the back of the self-help department in any bookstore, uh-huh. nine out of 10 books will be on role-based relationships. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we're talking about is intimate relationships, which is different. Yeah. With role-based yeah. relationships, you do your role and they do their role and there's no intimacy. And that's really what we're describing there. Got it. Got it. Uh, you're the man, you're the woman, or you're the man and the man or the woman and woman, or however you form it. Um, but we have these rigid roles and we, and you know that I'm interested in the relationship because I, I perform my role. Yeah. (coughs) Do you think our society supports this healthy image of attachment or do you think that there are cultural influences that would hinder like what we see out there? I think that we are we live in such an affluent society that we can afford our social isolation in a way that less affluent societies can't. Mm. What you do know, you mean by that? Well, in a in a society where multi generations of the family live together because they there aren't economic means for everybody to have their own household, the social structure is very different. You're more oriented around the family. It's more communal, more collaborative because of the nature of the economy of it. In the West, because uh, we're based on a consumer capitalism where everybody has to have their own toaster in order for uh, the economy to thrive, we, we are oriented around these individual households. And if you're a person of enough means, you can live on your own in our culture um, and it, it seems like a, a goal in that way an independent autonomous life is the modeling but what it actually means is that you're socially disconnected wow. rather than socially connected mm, that's so interesting i do see independence as being something that's you know prized or put on a pedestal right uh, and interdependence so- would be better Interesting. Yeah. And as a result, I think, or I hear a lot from people, I don't want to be needy or I don't want to be, you know, that person, that crazy person or whatever, but it's almost like we're, we're demonizing that interdependence. We're not realizing. Neediness is such a pejorative way to understand that we all have the same needs. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm a human with needs. And so are you. I'm a human with needs and you're a human with needs. Let's get together and meet our needs. That seems like a good solution. (laughs) I love it. But I also hear the words, you know, the word codependence used a lot as a negative thing. And I've heard in other, I think, um, uh, oh shoot, I'm blanking, but um, emotionally uh, focused therapy, she talks talks about, you know, codependence is something that um, is overused and not, not accurate. Like we well, want- I, I would say codependence um, and it, this is particularly related also to addiction, um, is where 
one person receives the care and one person provides the care and it's not mutual, that would be a codependent relationship. And the main problem with that is that they're very unstable because the caretaker burns out. And then the, even though the caretaker, the caretaker person in that kind of relationship dynamic was never being taken care of, the other person was. And if the caretaker burns out and can't provide care, then both people in the relationship have no care, right? That's the problem. And it's unstable. Look, if you're in your mid to late 30s or older, seven out of 10 people who are single and available for dating are going to be dismissing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's very reassuring, George. <laughs> because they don't form long-lasting relationships, so they're constantly available. Yeah, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> um, so the I can tell you how to pick a dismissing person out in three questions on the first date, if that would be helpful. <gasps> oh my God, share us. <laughs> share it with us. I'm ready. I have my note ready. So the first thing you do is you... Ask them to remember uh, or to tell you what their early childhood was like. Okay. This is is your first date. (laughs) I'm so curious. Where did you grow up? Oh, what was that like for you? Um, That's good. You're really good at this. (laughs) And then if they, they'll typically come back with a memory that's uh, in 12 or older. So adolescence. Um, and then what you want to do is really push into childhood. Oh, where did you go uh, to school? Did you did you go to elementary school? I mean, you can. We're all adept. We can maneuver a conversation, right? Yeah, uh, we're good. <laughs> I'm so good with my words. It scares me sometimes. No, <laughs> they won't remember. They'll insist that they don't remember and return to the adolescence, or they'll use a memory a memory, and then you want to probe a little bit more uh, because they'll end up using the same memory to illustrate different angles of inquiry. Mm-hmm. <coughs> um, so that's the first the line of attack. Uh, the second line of attack is to, or I shouldn't say attack, the second line of inquiry is to ask them to to state an opinion, a strong opinion about something, establishing a worldview uh, of it, and then um, intentionally contradict it. What do you mean? So if somebody says they think that uh, the movie that they saw is the best movie that they've ever seen, you could use any subject matter, really. You just need them to state in a strong way their opinion about it. Um, the best movie I've ever seen is The Favorite, and, uh, and it's unquestionably the best movie ever made. And you say, ah, I didn't like it that much. I thought it sucked. Uh, they will come at you either strongly sedu- seducing or, or strongly bullying. Wow. Um, okay. Because they need to defend their worldview. So... If you contradict their worldview, they'll come back at you to seduce you into agreeing with them, or they'll try to bully you into agreeing with them. Mm-hmm. But you can't be the opposite. That's so interesting. 
Okay. You have to agree with them. And if you don't agree with them, they're going to bully you or they're going to seduce you into agreeing with them. Yeah. It's like an inability to hold that multiple realities can coexist. It's like mine is the only reality that exists. So you must validate it. (sighs) Got it. Okay. Um, And um, And number three. (laughs) Number three is um, see if you can get them to tell you what they think you're feeling emotionally without you telling them. Whoa. That's deep. Because... Dismissing people are not empathetic, and a lot of them uh-huh. can't even read facial expressions of emotion. <gasps> Interesting. But what you'll notice is that they're very good at eliciting you to tell them what you're feeling. And they're very good at trying to uh, sort of seduce you into feeling the way that they would like you to feel. Uh-huh. It can even go into gaslighting, but... Uh, so you, you intentionally withhold uh, any... Uh, verbal cue about how you're feeling and seeing whether they can pick it up. Mm. This is going to make some for some very interesting first dates out there. <laughs> All of you listeners, I want to hear. <laughs> I want to hear the, how this goes. <laughs> because okay. if you intuit that somebody's not empathetic, they're they're it, it's it's not going to come later, right? And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Send me your stories, your first date stories at Dr. Cab Meyer. (laughs) Then what you want to do is politely excuse yourself to go to the bathroom and rush out the back door. Oh, my God, George, (laughs) you're the worst. I can't believe you're a relationship expert. (laughs) Oh, wow. So given all these, these strategies, these questions, like things to look out for, you know, developing mindfulness, remembering your own empowerment and all of this, are there some specific, as we're wrapping up, are there some specific tips that you can give people to help them, you know, um, be able to shift or securely communicate? So even when their attachment conditioning tr- gets activated, right. can they, how can they do that? I, I really want to s- stress the no blame aspect of your conditioning. What do you think you could have done better at 10 months old to convince your caregivers to provide better care to you? Mm. What could you have done? Yeah. You do? Sat up. Could you even sit up at 10 months and say, listen, folks, I've been considering the care I, I've been receiving from you. And I can tell in 20 years, it's going to be a total disaster. You really need to up your game. Um, yeah. I'm going to give you a one star on the Yelp review. <laughs> <laughs> your parenting sucks you gotta get better at it or i'm gonna have a disaster oh my god it's so true though like we just it's acceptance i hear acceptance yeah we don't it isn't we didn't do anything wrong right we actually did the right thing which was to learn what they had to teach us whether that it turned out not to be useful is another thing that this, this stuff is changeable. And what you want to begin to do is move into an authentic expression uh, of what's happening. So what I mean by that is not that you, you uh, drag behind you a scroll of every terrible thing you did and you tell them, you just go through the scroll on the first date and tell them everything that's wrong with you so that you can make sure that they don't leave you when they find out. 
but that you're willing to express in the present moment what your actual experience of that is. So you're walking out of a film and the person you're with says that they loved the film and they felt deeply moved by it and you were irritated and thought it was pretentious, that you're able to say that or the reverse. They're complaining about how bad the film was and it was moving to you. And so you're able to say that in a way that that's kind and engaging so that you feel this spontaneous beingness of yourself uh, as, as vitally important information in the relationship and that the other person is uh, open to receiving that and, and willing to exchange with you in the same way. That's really where we're headed with this. And that you feel that you can be completely authentic and express that in the relationship and that it in no way threatens the relationship so that you have that deep felt sense of safety in the relationship. Mm. Then what opens from there is the possibility that you're emotionally regulated in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Withholding um, that peace, uh, then also the relationship isn't going to be that useful to you in terms of uh, supporting your exploration, which is where we find meaning. Mm-hmm. And also, I think, um, pay attention to uh, the sense of delight that the other person has and be drawn uh, to that. Get good at delighting in the people that you're in relationship to, because we all need that so vitally in our lives. That when we we walk up to the person uh, that we're connected to and, and they look at us and as soon as they see us, you can feel them lighting up with delight that that they're now with you. Mm. Um, And depending on your childhood circumstances, you may not know that. But secure people function in a world that the people that they surround themselves with are delighted to be with them. And, uh, And that's really one of the main energies of secure relationships is this sense of delight that we have with the people that we love. Oh my God, I love that feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so vital. Oh gosh, this entire episode is so potent. I just want to congratulate everybody on the reconstruction of our relationships. Good job. Good, yeah, (laughs) totally. Construction was very good. (laughs) You can learn secure functioning and you can move your relationships into the territory of secure functioning pretty quickly and pretty easily. Mm. And then you can have these much more functional relations support you as you do the deep work of uprooting the original conditioning, which is harder to do. But to move from insecure functioning relationships to secure functioning relationships is really just learning a skill set and doing it. Well, when you put it that way, it's like, oh, yes, of course I can do that. Yeah. Making it accessible. Wow. Oh my God. (laughs) George, thank you so much for coming on and dropping your wisdom. Oh, this Uh is amazing. And now people who are curious (coughs) and want to do these intensives and wants to dive in deeper with you. I mean, first of all, you're giving us an incredible gift of free meditation, correct? Well, we're, we we have a, I do a guided meditation every morning at 730 live on a conference call. Mm-hmm. For 25 minutes and you can dial in and it's also Dropbox so you can get the recordings later. Oh. Uh, we do ask for a contribution for that, but we also know that it isn't right for everybody. So we want to 
give you the opportunity to call in for a month and see whether you like it and then uh, support us if you want to do that. Amazing. Uh, so we'll include that in the show notes. Okay. And then when they want to dive in deeper and, and go to one of your intensives, how can they, how can they find you? We're, we have a website called metagroup.org and it has all of the listings for the different things that we're offering and you can sign up there or get more information. We also have a phone number. You can call the office 213-378-0489. Mm. So Monday through Friday office hours. We're here. So you can find him. Yeah. <laughs> he is there for you. <laughs> Changing our love lives, decoding our love lives. Right. That's what this is about. Totally. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was George Haas joining us today. Lovers, I want to thank you again for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show like I did, <laughs> please head to eatplaysex.com. Subscribe to the show. Connect with me. Get your free ebook on how you can have better com conversations around sex. And go click on this link for your free uh, month of meditations with George Haas and really create space for yourself. Come back in and tune in so that you can create the exact sex and love and relationship lives that you've been wanting. Because my goal here is to help you to eat, play, and sex better. So you can improve your sex life, which we know improves every aspect of your life. Mm. I'll see you again next time on Eat, Play, Sex. Thanks for tuning in, lovers. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel. You can find out more about our guests and topics from our show by checking out eatplaysex.com. Until next time, don't forget to nourish your sex life. <laughs>